This is what I will do to the growing books when I become Secretary of State. Let's go. This book's from the Missouri Public Library. When I'm in office, they will burn. Yeah, that's real. That's real. That's 24-year-old candidate Valentina Gomez from Missouri running for Secretary of State. Filmed by her mom, who I think is also her main campaign donor and her campaign manager and everything. But that's it. She allegedly checked those books out from the Springfield Public Library. Not an elementary school. Not a kid's library, okay? Those are books that are meant for teenagers and they're in a the special section. She checked them out and said, as Secretary of State of Missouri, she's going to burn books. Folks, history may not repeat itself, but goddamn, the rhythm sounds the same, doesn't it? Follows the same beat. This is the actual candidate. Is she going to win? I don't think so. But my God, that's the face of uh, the Republican Party today. And that's that's here in Missouri. So and I got a second video I want you to watch. Now, this is a little longer and it's just the audio. But I literally I, I, I want you to listen very carefully to an argument in the Missouri State Senate, which is a Republican supermajority. That's important for you to understand. It means the Republicans can do whatever they want without Democratic support as long as they stick together, which they all hate each other. But we'll do that. But this is the argument this week over an amendment to the state law that was passed a couple years ago that bans all abortions. Missouri was the first state in the country after the Dobbs decision to fully outlaw all forms of abortion with no exceptions. Eric Schmidt was then the uh, AG. Now he's a, sec uh, he's a senator. He was eager to sign that law the very first night it came out. Dobbs came out. There's been a big push here in Missouri to try and at least get exceptions. This, ladies and gentlemen, this friendly followers, this passionate people, this is the discussion that was had about a bill to allow exceptions for victims of rape and incest. Listen carefully to this whole conversation from State Senator Sandy Crawford, a Republican from rural Missouri. Where do children come from? Who gives life? God. God gives life, right? I, you know, I, that's what it all, all boils down to me. D does God make mistakes? God does not make mistakes, but his creation and I'm one of them, makes plenty of them. Yes, we absolutely make mistakes, but God does not make mistakes. And for some reason, even in some of these very horrific cases, there was a reason that God uh, allowed that, uh, there to be a child out of that situation. You know, I don't talk about this a whole lot. I think I've talked about it on the floor before, but I was never able to have children. So that makes maybe life a little bit more precious to me. And, you know, no matter what I tried, nothing worked. But what it told me was this. It wasn't me doing it. It was somebody else. And so I just wanted to make the point, and I thought it was really important that females on the other side of the coin spoke on this. And so, but I, I wanted to use you kind of uh, to, to bounce some things off of because I knew you were kind of down the same line as I was. But I just want us to think about that. And... Uh, one of the other senators was talking about God and religion a lot, but I just wanted to bring out the point that, you know, God is perfect. God does not make mistakes. And for some reason, he allows that to happen. Bad things happen. Uh, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to support the amendments because I am very pro-life, uh, regardless of what anyone might think. But it is very important to me. You heard that right. 
At one point, I believe she said that rape, while mentally taxing, is God's plan. And therefore, she would vote against a bill to allow the victims of rape and incest. That means a 10-year-old girl would have to carry a baby in Missouri, okay, of her rapist, of her incest person, okay? That's what she's saying. She's legislating based on the belief that it's God's plan and we should not question God's plan and that good things can come of it. My gosh darn, that 10-year-old girl being a mommy, can, good things can come of it. At the same time, one of the state senators of Missouri fielded a bill that would make it illegal for a woman in Missouri to ever get Medicaid if she had an abortion at some point in her life. This was never about saving babies, folks. It was never been. It's about control. It's about religious extremism. Those are fundamentalist talking points right there. And we're going to have to fight back. And why am I showing you stuff in Missouri? As you know, I'm from Missouri. I live in Missouri. Because my point, and it's something I'm going to talk about a lot. And matter of fact, next week's guest is going to talk about it, I'm sure, is the fact that we focus a lot. This show is going to be a lot about Mike, uh, Donald Trump, almost all about Donald Trump, his legal travails. But what I want you to understand, my friends, is not just Donald Trump, okay? The idea that Trump going away is going to make everything normal again. We have to understand that this is a fight for our country, and it goes all the way down to the streets of Missouri. Not, not, not Donald Trump. He's, 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 he's who he is. We have to fight at your school board. You have to fight your city council. You have to fight for your obscure races like Secretary of State. Who even knows the Secretary of State of State does? I barely know. I'm a freaking political guy. Those are the people who want those jobs. And why do they want those jobs? So they can control you. With that, I'm going to talk to a great guest to talk about the craziness of the legal system, and we're going to talk about why it's so important for you to get involved in this democracy before it's too late. Let's get on with the show. Oh, man. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about. You know, every week I say it's been a crazy week, but holy crap, holy man, this week was especially nuts. You know, we usually record on Wednesdays, as you guys know. Uh, thank God, with scheduling conflicts, we're doing it Friday <laughs> because so much has happened. And so I'm thrilled to welcome Professor Austin Serrat. He is a political science attorney. He's with William Nelson Cromwell, Professor of Jurisprudence and Political Science at Amherst College. A million other things in your bio, sir. Written, co-written, edited more than 50 books in the fields of law and political science. Austin, thank you for joining the show. I really appreciate you being here. My pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. I know you're a busy man right now. So uh, uh, let's just jump right into it. The biggest thing that everybody's been talking about overnight, President Biden's reaction to it, this special counsel report, you've been a lawyer, you've been a, you're a political scientist, both. I mean, it was really, it's making people insane. Uh, and I'm not a lawyer, but I've dealt with enough to know that it was a weird, there's a lot of weird editorializing in there, it seemed like, and it was completely bizarre. What's your take on this whole debacle that that report re represents? I think the report um, exemplifies something that is pervasive in American society, but is often not named. But what the report exemplifies is uh, ageism on every page. Wow. Yep. It isn't just that it reverences Biden's age, 
but it references Biden's age in ways that convey a kind of prejudice. Mm. Um, the way it describes the president as a kind of well-meaning uh, 80-year-old uh, but forgetful human being, the way it references things like his inability uh, to remember the precise dates when he was the vice president of the United States, the way it references his alleged inability to remember the precise uh, year or date that his son passed away, those are marks of of ageism. Right. And ageism, uh, I think, is a kind of the last acceptable prejudice in the United States. Hmm. That's uh, just to focus on that narrow issue. Um, the whole thing comes across to me as confusing the legal and the political. Yeah. It's as if what the special prosecutor was trying to do was to accomplish a legal end to make a determination about whether the president uh, violated any federal laws. And along the way, uh, in addition to accomplishing the legal end of making that judgment, it's as if the special prosecutor was trying to uh, do what James Comey did in right. 2016, which is to put his hand on the scales of judgment in a presidential election. Right. And it's just unheard of. I mean, the legal argument, I mean, I've, I've seen so many great analysis of it. Meaning in one page, he's saying that he clearly took this evidence and hide it. But 200 pages later, he's saying, well, there really isn't enough evidence to prove that. It, it, it's just like, and so he went this bizarre editorial content. And and I've, I'm, Frank, I never seen it like it. I mean, it, it is reminds me of some lawsuits. I've you know, libel lawsuits, but to see a, a prosecutor put these things in there to paint such a clear picture of what he was politically editorializing, I mean, um, was there a mistake by Garland? I mean, putting this guy, I mean, he's a Republican. Her's a Republican, right? I mean, what, do you think there is a mistake, right, the foundation of this whole thing? Or, or how do we get here? Prosecutors, all of them, including so-called special counsel, have enormous discretion. Yeah. Enormous discretion. I mean, what what I think most people don't realize is that once a prosecutor establishes probable cause, a prosecutor can choose to prosecute or not for good reason or bad reason or no reason at all. Right. Now, this 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 um, uh, hers report didn't recommend prosecution. So it's we're not going to see that kind of post uh, post indictment or post determination that there's probable cause exercise of prosecutorial discretion. But what you see in the in the report is an example of the enormous discretion that prosecutors have. Uh, no one tells them you can only talk about this and you can only talk about that. Right. So it's a discretionary judgment what you put in that kind of uh, what you put in that kind of report. And I think that it's um, as I said, it mixes the legal and the political. Do I think that Garland made a mistake in appointing these, this person? No, I don't. Okay. I think the mistake was in what the person did. Yeah. In fact, what Garland did. I think exemplifies something really good and important, and that is the belief that it doesn't matter what your political party is, that if you're a prosecutor or if you're a judge, it's not your political party that should lead your judgment. It's the integrity of the judgment itself. So the idea that Garland would appoint a Republican uh, special counsel, I, there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, I think that's uh, that's a sign of the health of the rule of law in the United States, even if this particular special prosecutor didn't exemplify the best that the rule of law uh, uh, holds out. 
But for a, uh, for a person like me, who's just a civilian, if you will, I've never been a lawyer. I, I, I've hardly even spent any time in court, thank God. Um, I may be soon, <laughs> but I haven't. And it did, it feels like, and something I talk about a lot in my political work is there is a bygone era. We, we say this a lot about Mr. Biden and, and, and Ms. Pelosi and uh, Chuck Schumer is that they are people or older people, nothing else, of a different era of politics where there was congeniality, there was a professionalism, there was a recognition of, of professional standards. And I think Mr. Garland does that too in a lot of ways. Um, but as a lot of us feel, especially young, I think younger, and you teach young kids, is they don't see it anymore. What they see is like for a guy like me as a pure political hack on the left, especially I kind of caught a saw this coming. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, if you if you uh, th that the the right especially has used these opportunities for political gain, and they would and he look that guy wrote. I, I just feel like the guy wrote that line, especially a couple of the lines. He knew they'd be clipped, and he knew they'd be used over and over by the right wing media. It feels like, in some ways, for a lot of us, a self own. But do you see that in your work that there there has been a shift? There's a politicalization of a lot of things that should be non political, should be professional, and this one seems like one of those times to a lot of us i don't want to draw false equivalents because okay. i have my political affiliation yeah but i think the thing that you are describing comes not just from the right it comes from the left as well yeah a lot of progressive academics of whom i would say i i, I am one spend a very long period of time saying oh there's no difference between law and politics mm -hmm. so what happens if we send the message out there that there's no difference between <clears throat> law and politics that oh law it's just a masquerade for a political agenda Hmm. Well, that may be descriptively accurate, but what it does is it invites people to enact what we just described. Yeah. So, uh, look, Michelle Obama offered up formula. It's a very hard, hard formula. I'm not sure it's a formula that needs to govern all of our political lives. Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. Yeah. So to recognize that this was a bit of a political hit job, it might confirm our skepticism or our cynicism about the possibility of impartial, disinterested pursuit of the truth. But what's the choice? That we give into it and yeah. that we, in, we enact the very same thing on the other side? I think what we should do is we should criticize it and we should point out its failings and we should hold the standard of impartial, disinterested judgment as the standard of criticism that we use and not just give in to the cynicism of, well, it's just another political, it's just another political hit job. I love it. <laughs> I had a great perspective and you've been doing it a long time and you've seen the arc of these things probably even much more than I have professionally. Um, but we did have a good example of how it can go right, right? I think if we go back to the DC circuit of uh, the appeals court ruling, which is being described by many smarter people than me as, as an airtight ruling uh, on the immunity, uh, the exceptional ruling argument, that almost kind of has what you just said, sir, is like it, it goes back to the, the, the proper prosecution of the law. Those were, um, one of those were Republican appointed, two were not. But right. they did. They they worked very hard. They took their time, which was frustrated a lot of political people, right? But that's a very good ruling, right? I, I, I kind of think it does make your point, doesn't it? That that ruling was based on the law and very clear in its thing. Was that your take on that ruling as well? Yes, I, I thought it was a model of uh, legal reasoning. I thought it was a wow. model of careful analysis. I thought it was a model of taking the arguments presented, each one of them and treating them thoroughly. Yeah. 
I thought it was a model of careful attention to the facts. I thought it was a model of the use of uh, the use of history to inform um, legal analysis. And as you pointed out, and I quite liked, uh, two Demo- two judges appointed by Democrats, one judge judge appointed by a Republican, and they issued this unusual form of legal opinion, the per curiam opinion for yeah. the court, because they wanted to send the message that this was not simply the expression of a judge. This was the expression of all of them together. And that was an amazing, amazing and important um, moment, I think. Yeah. And the claim, my own view, of course, the claim of absolute immunity has no basis in the American Constitution, has no basis in history yeah. um, uh, of the Republic. And uh, I thought that, that that decision was so good that it doesn't need further review. I hope the United States Supreme Court will refuse to hear if the if President Trump appeals. I hope the court will refuse to hear it because I don't think the Supreme Court can do any better than was done by that panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. That's quite a statement because I mean, we have been disappointed a lot, right? We have seen some, you know, the, the Florida case is dragging on. We're seeing some, you know, manipulation, it feels like, of of the, the rules and the laws, but these guys, these three uh, judges um, came out strong with an airtight uh, case. And, and, and a ton of does play to what we've struggled with the Supreme Court of, of taking on these very political cases, which did happen this week again, right? The next case we talk about, of course, is the arguments yesterday in support of, of knocking Trump off the, uh, the Colorado ballot. I actually had one of the, the plaintiff's lawyers here uh, on the show not two, three weeks ago, um, Mario Nicolaus. And uh, and that that a lot of experts are kind of have listened in to the arguments and there was a lot. It sounded like there was a, a disappointment. But I, I think for me, for our conversation, it did. I felt like they were just trying to find a way to not have to do this. Right. Like not take the position of kicking him off the ballot, which is they're, they're looking for that safer space, leading us to say with the D.C. Court of Appeals being such a strong case, it does give them the safety you saying not good enough right is that is that your does it do, do you think that was their goal sir the, the court uh i think it's a nightmare if you're a supreme court justice <laughs> yeah to be confronted yeah. with the question of is the president of the united states the former president of the united states absolutely immune from criminal prosecution on the on on one day so to speak and the right. next day should the leading Republican contender and former president of the United States be disqualified from appearing on pre- the presidential um, presidential ballot? Right. Uh, as I said, I hope the Supreme Court will not take the immunity case. I hope it will just uh, let it let it rest where it is. I hope that that will enable uh, the legal proceeding in Washington D.C. to uh, against the former president to proceed, so that there can be a determination made yeah. in a court of law about whether his actions after the 2020 election violated federal law. With respect to the um, disqualification case, again, I kind of found it very intriguing because it seemed to me that the judges were acting like judges. They were carefully attending to questions like, is the president included under officers of the United States? They were carefully attending to, what would be the consequence of a ruling I mean, Elena Kagan, you know, hardly a conservative, no. asked a very telling question, which right. is what would happen if any single state, by disqualifying a, a person from being on their ballot, could 
in essence, decide a presidential uh, a presidential election. Right. Um, if if there was any disappointment for me in the oral argument, it was there was not sufficient attention to the question of whether or not former President Trump quote engaged in an insurrection. Yeah. But what they did focus on, they focused on in what I would describe as a, a kind of lawyer like way, a judge like way. It, it it struck me that they were displaying a kind of craftsperson's approach to this. We need to figure out whether or not the president is an officer of the United States. We need to figure out whether or not there needs to be some uh, prior determination that he engaged in an, in, in an insurrection yeah. before disqualification can, um, can proceed. Look, I don't, I don't want to seem, I don't want to seem naive about this, but I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Hmm. We can call out the politicization. We can call out the use and misuse of legal process for political ends. We can call out the special counsel for the ageism of the report that he uh, produced. At the same time, holding firm to standards that say, actually, it makes a difference if you're impartial. Actually, we believe that that impartiality can be achieved and can be demonstrated. Actually, what we want judges to do is to pay attention to the law, not just to uh, their political goals. So I think it's important to be simultaneously realistic, but also um, aspirational. Right. And and I, actually, let's think, let's think it's cause right there. <laughs> That's a great place. So we have great sponsors this week. Let's pause just for our sponsor. Come right back. If you're like me, you understand the pain of finding out what to wear each day. I mean, most clothes I have are uncomfortable, never actually the size I really am, and not to mention how much time is wasted trying to find a good outfit. And when you do have a good fit, you can only wear it for a few hours. We have to change for an important meeting or dinner, find a new outfit. Now, everyone wants to dress well at all times because simply put, it's a confidence booster, even for men like me. Men's closets were due for a radical overhaul and reinvention, and Roan stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection is the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible set of products known to man, and here's why. Roan helps you get ready for any occasion with the commuter collection, which offers the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, and polos. You never have to worry about what to wear when you have the Roan commuter collection. With gold fusion, anti-odor technology, you'll be smelling fresh and clean all day long, and on top of that, Roan is 100% machine washable, so you can just ditch it all in the dry cleaner or ditch the dry cleaner completely, put it all in your own washing machine yourself. You know, I'm obsessed with the Roan commuter collection. We're on the move a lot, whether it's I'm catching a flight or I'm going to a meeting or whatever. The Roan commuter collection has never let me down so far. The commuter collection can get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to head to roan.com slash Fred, use promo code Fred to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off. Your entire order when you head to R-H-O-N-E dot com slash Fred and use code Fred. It's time for you to find your corner office of comfort. Check out our sponsor, Roan. I hope you'll buy some outfits today. And we're back. So we left off with the the aspirational idea of these court rulings being appropriate and holding them to it. How do we as American citizens, I mean, the courts are so unique, right? I mean, yep. how, how can we hold their feet to the fire? How, how, is there a way, and you've been doing this your whole life professionally and, and personally, how do we hold them accountable? How could, how could our viewers, for example, is it, is it really, is there a way for us to finally push them or is it is it things like this, having these conversations? 
I want to, if you will, avoid the question the way you've asked it. And, <laughs> Perfectly okay. <laughs> and, and focus on focus on quote what we can do. Okay. So, uh, may, many people in the United States are concerned about the fate of democracy and the fate of the yes. rule of law. Yeah. Those concerns are absolutely appropriate. They're absolutely appropriate, no, no doubt about it. But there's something each one of us can do. It's not just about how do we prevent the courts from going off the rails. Here are some things that I think citizens can do in their daily, in their daily lives. They can think democratically. Now I'm going to tell you what I mean by thinking democratically. They can practice democratic virtues. Here's what I think those democratic virtues, some of those democratic virtues are. For democracy to survive, we have to be committed to the idea that we need, each of us needs to tell the truth as we know it, but to tell it in a way that can be heard by somebody who doesn't already agree with us. Mm. Too much discourse in the United States is about telling the truth as we know it and pleasing other members of our team. Mm. Too little discourse tries to imagine, how can I say what I want to say? in a way that could be comprehended, understood, and maybe taken on board by people who don't agree with me. To think democratically is to value listening as much as speaking. To think democratically is to be genuinely curious about the views of others with whom one doesn't agree. To think democratically is to be modest enough to imagine that our side might not win yeah. and to be able to accept the results when we don't win. So as much as I want to think about what can we do to hold the courts accountable and to make sure that judges hew to the aspirations and don't descend into the cynical reality, I think that's an important conversation, but I think it's also important to ask, what should we be doing as citizens? And I think what we should be doing as citizens is, insofar as we are able, to practice the habits of democratic life and to think democratically. And I, you wrote a piece a while ago uh, about your concerns that young Americans don't see the aspirations of democracy, that that there are polls showing that many young Gen Z and millennials kind of say, well, you know, democracy, autocracy, dictatorship, I'm screwed either way. And it, you you shared concerns that perhaps we've got a younger generation that doesn't recognize the, 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 the need for perpetuating our democracy, <laughs> you know, it, it leads right to that. I and mean, you see that in your daily life. You teach, you teach first years sometimes, don't you? So here's what, here's what we know. We know that people my age, people born in the 1930s and 1940s, are much more attached to democratic values and democratic norms than people born 1980s and since. And why is that the case? Well, for people my age, we lived through the threat of fascism, the threat of communism, mm -hmm. We understood that there's something really at stake in the maintenance of democratic um, institutions. Yeah. Younger people have, until recently, been able to take democratic institutions for granted. It was just the air that they breathed. We, we were a democracy. Of course, we were a democracy. But at the same time, think about what's happened in the 21st century, 9-11 and the war on terrorism, yeah. so-called enhanced interrogations. 2008 and the collapse of the financial markets and the rescue of Wall Street, but not doing anything for Main Street, COVID and the absolute mishandling at the beginning of the COVID um, epidemic, 
What is it that young people have seen? They've seen democratic institutions in paralysis. They've seen democratic institutions unable to deliver on the promise of improving the lives of ordinary citizens. Yeah. So why wouldn't younger people be uh, skeptical about democratic institutions, democratic practices? I, I do want to say, though, that the students that I teach and many young people they may be somewhat disillusioned with democracy, but I don't think that means that they're eager for authoritarianism. Right. I think it would be a kind of false inference to say that, well, they're not as attached to democracy as we are, older people are, but that means they're eager for authoritarianism. I don't think they're eager for authoritarianism. I think what they're eager for is the revitalization of a form of government that would be inclusive, egalitarian, that would treat people with dignity, that would tend to real problems like problems of climate change and racial justice and gender justice. That's what I think younger people want. And I think their, their disillusionment with democracy ought to inspire us to give them some model of democracy, to give them some example of democracy that would be worth their loyalty. Yeah. And we don't see that. We saw that this week with the border bill defeat, right? A, a bill that had been demanded right. and negotiated and fought over comes out 270 pages. And before it's even issued, it's already been condemned full of lies and, 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 and something that everybody said they wanted and they threw it out. Um, I can see a frustration growing across every merit, right? Well, I think it's um, this is an example of the paralysis which has uh, affected and afflicted, uh, I think, our, our, our national government. It's a miracle when uh, legislation gets passed uh, that reflects a kind of what the American people want. I mean, the American people want gun control. Well, we got some gun control, not a lot of gun control. Man. American people want reproductive rights. Well, we're right. in a battle for reproductive rights. Uh, so I think that's right. I think the thing that thing that we goes back to the realism and aspiration. We have to acknowledge the reality of democratic dysfunction, but not give up on the aspiration of uh, democratic life and democratic culture and thinking democratically. Yeah, and 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 show it work. Um, and and what's the future of that? I mean, you did a piece uh, recently about how how the proliferation of polls and the proliferation yeah. of discussing the the horse race, right? We, that's what we talk about every week. Oh, here, he's up, he's down, they're up, they're down, you know. Um, and and we and we're and we're getting lost, right? I mean, there's so much of it now. While we all are kind of addicted to it, like a dopamine rush. Um, do you think that's part of what we're talking about, right? They're, they're, we're constantly being told what we're thinking, <laughs> right? And it may not I, yeah. be accurate, right? I mean, it, I think that undermines a lot of what we're saying too, doesn't it? I, I agree with you. I, I, um, I confess, as I did in the piece, to yeah. being addicted to polls. <laughs> I, the latest poll, I'm on it right away. Um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing others. I'm saying about myself that too much attention is paid to the horse race. Too much attention is paid to, is Biden leading Trump? Is Trump leading Biden? What we ought to be paying attention to is mobilizing to advance causes that we believe in, voting, supporting candidates who we think are going to provide effective solutions to uh, pressing problems. And each one of us needs to make sure that in November uh, we show up at the polls uh, at the polls that count, we show up uh, to vote. 
Uh, and that's what counts. That's far more important than, well, today uh, Trump is up by five points or down by five points. That occupies far too much of our attention. Politics, especially American politics today, is not a spectator sport, and we can't afford to be spectators. And our democracy will not survive if people sit on the sidelines and entertain themselves, amuse themselves by reading today's or tomorrow's or the next day's poll results. Yeah. And that's where we have to motivate our fellow citizens. And I, it's something I say a lot is I joke on the show a lot that, you know, if, if, if a poll comes out or a story comes out and says, if the election was held today, I would say, OK, stop right there because <laughs> it's not or tomorrow. Right. It's not the, the elections in November. Uh, and as we saw just this week, like if you look at just the last 24 hours, right, it, 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 stuff changes fast in, our, in, in America. You know, I mean, it, we went from a pretty cool week to some monumental legal issues to this bizarre report where we had the president of the United States having to go into a press conference where he's furious. I mean, I, I've seen Biden a lot. Okay. I, I, I met him when he was a senator. He visited me in Iraq when he was a senator. I've, I've seen the man for, you're talking 20 years ago, you know, 2005. I mean, my God, um, I've, I've seen Mr. Biden a lot. Uh, that was visceral anger for a man who does, tries to avoid visceral anger, right? And, and so it is easy to get lost in these day-to-day -day fights. But the, the larger fight is for the larger democracy, isn't it? The larger fight is to preserve American democracy. The larger fight is to acknowledge democracy's weaknesses and to address them. The larger fight is to make sure that we produce a democracy that is worthy of our loyalty. Uh, that's the ongoing work, and that's the important work that faces people in the United States today. And I'll maybe uh, give you a bit of optimism. I love optimism. So here's the optimism. For my generation, it was fascism and communism yep. that uh, animated our devotion to democratic institutions. Yep. Maybe for the younger generation, they have been shaken out of their complacency by what's happened since 2016. Perversely, uh, the phenomenon of uh, the MAGA Republicans and the former president's attack on democracy might shake the younger generation out of their complacency. Yeah. So how's that for a bit of optimism? <laughs> I like it. You know, I, uh, before you came on, I opened the show with a, a video of a, a woman who's running for Secretary of State here in Missouri with a flamethrower, a burning book she checked out of the public library to show that she's going to burn books. I mean, it's history has a way of... Uh, <laughs> Echoing, doesn't it, that we we are up against a, a party and, and, a, and a movement that goes beyond Trump, by the way, that is echoing all we hear in the streets of Missouri uh, that is truly anti-democratic. Yeah, but, but again, I, I think we, we, we have, there are two dangers. One is to underestimate the threat of a kind of authoritarian a push from uh, elements of the Republican Party. The other danger is to assume that the problems that democracy faces are going to go away if we can only get them to straighten themselves out. Yeah. The problems that America faces today were there long before anybody was talking about Donald Trump. Yeah. So to the extent that people think that uh, former President Trump is a threat to democracy, that may that may very well be. But. The real threats to democracy are out there on Main Street. 
There are schools that don't work. There are health care that, that doesn't deliver. There are roads that you can't drive on. There, there are communities that don't have broadband. There's the inability of a generation to imagine that they can live better than their parents live. There's income inequality. Those are the issues that we have to get down to addressing uh, if we're really going to deal with the problems that threaten American democracy. I could have said it better myself. <laughs> and I couldn't. I, I would rather, I just rather end there, too. <laughs> I mean, thank you. Thank you so much, Professor. I, I, well, I just, thank, uh, your time is so valuable. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for, for having me on. I appreciate the conversation. All right. We'll see you again soon. We got more to talk about next time. Thanks so much. Wow. What a great conversation. I'm so fortunate I was able to get uh, Austin on in a very short notice, by the way. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we did it on Friday because so much has happened and trying to put it all in perspective. I know other Myers Touch Network shows are probably talking about these legal cases. They're all lawyers. I'm not the only, I'm the only one that's not a lawyer, I think. But but I did want to get some perspectives. What makes Austin so unique is that he's not just a lawyer. He's also a political scientist who's been teaching for years and is highly accomplished. So, man, I, I love these kind of shows. Hey, I've been promising you for a while that I'd give you an update on what's going on with my case. Uh, so as many of you may have heard, or maybe it's your first time, you're watching the show for the first time, I'm one of the lucky people who's been sued by Michael Flynn. Uh, failed former General Michael Flynn, former NSA, uh, has been on a lawsuit spree, a libel spree, um, suing a number of people who uh, they accuse of libeling him. Uh, I, I know of at least four or five cases, to be honest with you, that he is he has filed against people like Denver Riggleman for his book, uh, a guy named Jim Stewartson for accusations about his involvement in the QAnon movement, my friend Rick Wilson for a couple of tweets. Uh, my God, I could go on the list as long. Uh, and it's part of a MAGA movement. Uh, the law firm they're involved with, Banal Law Firm, uh, Law Group, has been handling all these cases. Devin Nunes, uh, Rich Grinnell, Cash Patel. They got $2.5 million from Donald Trump last year. Nobody knows how or why. So, so this they've been on a, a, a lawsuit spring. Our case, for those who don't know, has been filed in the the second uh, the court court in uh, Saratoga. Uh, Sarasota, sorry, Sarasota, Florida, Sarasota, Florida, uh, the federal court case in this case. It's interesting because others are state. Uh, in the big developments the last two weeks were that Rick Wilson's case was dismissed at the state level. Uh, and Rick's case was very similar. So if you don't know, the original accusation uh, several months ago was that three tweets that I sent almost, well, now over two years ago, uh, accusing Mr. Flynn of several things uh, that were... Uh, I would argue true. Um, we filed our dismissal. Uh, between our dismissal um, being filed, um, they decided to update their filing. They dropped an updated filing where they actually updated the case to just a single tweet. Just one tweet sent two years ago that discusses Mr. Flynn's involvement with President Putin. And they want $150 million. I, I want you to chew on that for a second. I've been asked, I've been accused of uh, libeling Mr. Flynn, and they want $150 million. Let's put that in perspective, that number. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was just penalized for $148 million for literally destroying the lives of two women in Atlanta. Donald Trump's been on a libel spree for two years against E. Jean Carroll. He was hit with $83 million. But no. Failed former general Michael Flynn wants this guy who drives an eight-year-old car <laughs> and has a four-year-old computer to give him $150 million for a single tweet. That's the case. I've got incredible lawyers. Mark Zaid, Brad Moss, a gentleman down in Florida is being wonderful to us. And uh, Josh Enton's his name. And they're doing it 
pro bono, which doesn't actually mean free. It just mean they've been very generous with their time and they've reduced their fees and all that stuff to help me. And we've, we're kicking these. We're, we're, we're fighting hard. They've had to put it with me as a client. And me as a client said, no, no, we are not settling. We're not going to walk away from this. We're not going to beg. We're not going to move the move, try and move the, the the location of the lawsuit to give them a break to file it somewhere else. No, we are going to fight this because it's not true for four or several reasons. One, Mr. Flynn is a public figure. Two, it's true. It's true. It's true. He went to Moscow. Okay, it's public. It's in the public record that Mr. Flynn is. If you can look up the newspapers, Mr. Flynn went to Russia. Was paid checks by the reg, Russian regime. He was paid by the Putin regime. That's, I don't know. I can't, these are actually in the federal record. He went to court for it. He was convicted of crimes. He is a foreign agent of Turkey. He was convicted of a crime for that. These are facts, you know? So we have now, to the update in the case, and I'm very proud of the work we're doing. Uh, my incredible attorneys have, have filed our second renewed a motion for dismissal uh, because based a lot of it because Mr. Wilson, Rick Wilson's case was dismissed and it's very similar to mine. His was based on two tweets uh, and one of them accused him of, quote, being an employee of Putin. Uh, the, the judge wrote a very scathing report saying uh, that he doesn't necessarily need to get a W-2 <laughs> to be an employee. You know, it's, it's, it's Internet hyperbole, if you will. It's people being hyperbole, which is allowed. OK, so based on that dismissal and other developments, we have filed for an immediate dismissal and we have filed for anti-slap sanctions. We intend to seek sanctions against their attorneys. That will repay our attorney fees and the hard work my attorneys are doing for free. And hopefully we can pay them back for that. Uh, I will not get any money. Let's be very clear. I will not get any money from this case. Okay, Even if we win and the anti-slap filing wins, all that does is pay my lawyers. If there's any money left over, as we have started a legal defense fund, there's a legal defense fund. Flynn had a legal defense fund for defending himself when he sued CNN. When that was dismissed, he distributed the legal defense fund to his family and him. Half a million dollars went to his family and him. Our legal defense fund, which you can find on GoFundMe, and we will put a link up, Matt. If you put a link up on the screen, I'll put a link in the. Uh, I will put a link in the blurb. I will put a story up on our Substack. Uh, it's on GoFundMe. It's defend defend democracy against MAGA lawsuits. Um, our funds, if it, if there's any left after the lawyers pay their fees and travel, I'm probably going to have to travel to Florida for a hearing on the slap sanctions. We're going to do that in person. Um, if the case isn't dismissed, I'm not going to lie, folks. I'm not rich. I know you see me here and you think so. I'm not. I'm an average guy. I do this because I like I care. Um, if it goes further, if we had to go to depositions, if we have to go to more, then the fact is that it'll uh, cost a lot of money at that point. You know, flying in experts, expert witnesses, it gets fast, it gets ugly. And that's their hope. Their hope is to drain our bank accounts. Their hope is that we'll give up. Their hope is that we'll settle. I will not. I'm not. Just not going to do it. Principle, morals, and for what I stand for denies me any idea of giving in to someone whose goal is to threaten and intimidate people who speak up. I won't do it. So that's the update in the case. We have filed our dismissal. Um, there's, it's a long process. There's every reason to believe that our, our, uh, our opponents will file for an extension out of professional courtesy. We'll give them the time. They're also trying to appeal Rick Wilson's case. I'm sure they're quite busy. Um, we will as professionals give them their time, but in the end, we will continue to push for a dismissal of this outrageous case, this ludicrous amount of money and the stupidity of it all. 
And no, no, if Mike Flynn's or lawyers are watching, I hope you're billing them. I'm not giving you a dime. Not a damn dime of my money is going to you. Ever. So that's the update in the case. Meanwhile, as you saw at the top of the show, the ludicrousness across our country is growing. The stupidity of our friends on the Republican side is growing. It's not just Donald Trump. Okay, what you saw happen in Congress last week is a perfect example. They demanded a law. When the law came, just what they wanted, they walked away from the agreement. You cannot trust the Republican Congress in any way, shape, or form. The only answer is to flip it, folks. The only answer is to take the House back, to grow our lead in the Senate, to keep the White House. There is no other answer. Just as our guest today said, you do your duty and vote. Get your friends to vote. Okay, we're not going to flip them. They're not going to come to our side. We don't need to hug them closer, folks. We've tried hugging. Okay, hugging ain't working. Okay, we need to fight at the ballot box. We need to fight the electoral fight. Okay, I'm very proud to be the national chairman of Forgotten Democrats, sort of a spokesman. I lead the effort. Our goal is our first cycle here. It's very simple. It's not any like these packs. It's not like my old work at the Lincoln Project. You'll never see an ad from Forgotten Dems. You're going to see our website's not fancy. You're going to see our social media isn't fancy. There's no staff. It's about three of us total. Uh, and they, they have other jobs, right? We all have other jobs. The goal of Forgotten Dems is a very simple one. Using a special earmark from the FEC, we're able to crowdfund your monthly donations to multiple candidates because no human touches it. The only rule is they need money because they're the lowest fundraising candidate nominee, Democratic nominee in the country. This money for Forgotten Democrats will go to Democratic nominees for Congress who have not been able to raise the money they need to put up a good fight against Republicans. Last cycle, 23 Republicans ran unopposed, 126 ran with opponents that never raised even $200,000. If we do this right, we raise enough money and we can fight back. And it's, it's simple. The money comes to our, our, we don't touch it. No human touches it. There's no forms that a candidate will fill out. There's nothing a candidate has to request. We don't, we're not going to prove his policy chops. If they're the Democratic nominee in their district and they need money based on how much we have available each month as we go into the cycle, as, we, as it comes up Nick, further than this year, they will get a check. For that amount, a certain amount. So, and it comes down to you guys. If you want your money to go to actual Democratic candidates who need the money, maybe not in your state, maybe elsewhere, Forgotten Democrats is a great place to do it. So you can see it's ForgottenDemocrats.org. Uh, an easy way to join our email list is, is 3377. Uh, just tap, tap, text FRED at 3377 and you can get on our email list. But I just love you to give a small monthly donation. 25 bucks will go a long way. A little bit of that money goes to me to help me talk to candidates, to coach candidates, to do the research, to find out where the races are that need help, okay? So we need a little bit of overhead so we can actually find out where the money should go. But it's that simple, folks. There's no fancy overhead. There's no, there's no freaking TV commercials, money that goes out and is distributed to candidates who need it. So that's the longest riff I've ever given you about Forgotten Dems and the longest I've ever done about my lawsuit. I know it's not very fun, but I appreciate all of you joining us here uh, on the Myest Touch Network. I appreciate you following us and being part of this fight. We have great guests every week, every Friday night on the Myest Touch Network. I'm so proud to be a part of the network. You can always find me. I'm still on X Twitter at FP Wellman. I'm on Instagram as FP Wellman Official as well as Threads. If you're not on Threads yet, if you're joining me there, please check out FP Wellman Official on, on Threads. I'd love you had to join us and follow us. As always, you can find our shows right on On Democracy Podcast on YouTube. If you want to get ahead of everybody, else this week of course is a friday <laughs> friday recording so you're not gonna get too far ahead and i love you of course to join us on substack fp wellman on substack as well um that is growing beautifully and we're, we're doing some more stuff we're doing a lot more writing lately because i have the the urge to write about this crazy congress having said all that a lot of talk from me which i try to avoid thank you for being a part of the honor family thank you for being part of the Myers touch network 
I just can't think enough of you guys. So let's get in the fight. We'll see you next week. You know, this may shock you, but I'm a bit of a fan of good quality bath and body products. So I'm excited to introduce you to Sugar and Spruce. It's a woman and family owned and operated small business. It's all about making your bath time routine feel like a treat. At Sugar and Spruce, they believe that indulgence and self-care can go hand in hand. That's why they craft their products with the philosophy of fun. Oh, while keeping them oh so good for you. It's all about finding the perfect balance, like a foam party for your senses, without any harsh chemicals or nasty preservatives. And guess what? They've got a little something for everyone under their umbrella. That's right. Ladies, gentlemen, even the little ones can enjoy the magic of Sugar and Spruce bath products. It's a bath time extravaganza for the whole family. So, you know, look, whether you're a bath aficionado, a bubble enthusiast, or just someone who wants to add a sprinkle of joy to your day and have a great start, Sugar and Spruce has you covered. They got bath bombs that sizzle, bath salts that transport you to a serene oasis, <laughs> and handcrafted traditional soap, which I just love, to make your skin feel fresh and clean, as well as a line of products just for men. Support a woman and family-owned business. Uh, a family, you know, you might even recognize the name when you check it out. And treat yourself to some blissful bubbles today. Now, head over to their website today at sugarandspruce.com and give yourself the gift of indulgence by entering the code FRED and you'll get 20% off your first order. That's right, if you shop online and use code FRED at checkout, you'll get a whopping 20% off your first order of handmade bath and body products straight from Frederick, Virginia. That's sugar and spruce, S-P-R-U-C-E.com. Sugar and spruce bath products, where the everyday routines become extraordinary treats. 